content warning. Today's episode of So Many Books, So Little Time contains themes including death, various mentions of lack of sanity in a way that also as as responding to the content. Yeah, there's also mention of death and, and murder and um, violence and uh, many, many, many things. And and I might just interject that one of the chapters is quite anxiety-inducing. Yeah, it's pretty stressful. There's at least one that's very stressful. Hey, hey, folks, Dave here. And Rue. And welcome to So Many Books. So Little Time. Please join us for Chapter 14 of Catch-22 by Joseph Heller, Kid Sampson. Do you think it's the small version of the guy whose wife cut his hair and he was no longer strong? Uh, maybe. I, I'm not sure. I am not sure. It's a, it's a character we haven't met yet, so we will find out. And, um, and I, 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 told the, I told that story in the most roundabout way possible. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I have no idea. There's, you all know Samson um, and Delilah, right? <laughs> If, I, if you don't, it had to do with the haircut. It was all about the hair. <laughs> no, I don't know what it was about. Like I can't a remember. A haircut and yet another uh, story about the evils of women. Yeah, it's just well. I mean, that's how it's it's framed in our current narrative. But I suspect it had a completely different meaning at the time. Probably. And, and I suspect it's been um, coded very differently through generations and generations of reframing. Because well, uh, I know control. it from I know it from the Bible, and it might well, be a yes. story earlier than that. Well, no, even the story in the Bible. I mean, that's it's from the the um, quote unquote Old Testament. And as soon as we say Old Testament, what we're talking about is actually, you know, well, it's it's the time that preceded Christianity. So those whether those stories have have been faithfully continued or whether they have been modified to fit the larger narrative is a whole nother discussion but i am no i'm no i'm no theologist and i am not a a person who can read the original text in aramaic and hebrew and therefore or greek what what i want to jump in there with is that most of the earliest stories we have on record and the stories from the bible are among that collection of older stories Hmm. Writing, if I remember correctly, uh, it's about five thousand years old, uh, and but mm, mm. well, let, let's just say for the point of the point I'm making, let's call yes, it five thousand yes, years old. Yes. The stories that were written five thousand years ago were likely told orally around campfires yes. for thousands of years more, because because the best yeah. stories, um, you know, humanity. One thing that and I guess maybe it's why I find reading and stories in general so appealing and so uh, fundamental to living. And we talked about how important stories are to mm. kind of um, look into the eyes of another or, or encounter and experience things outside our own uh, worldview. But so, yeah, for the point of argument, uh, writing 5,000 years old, the oldest of the stories recorded would have been told orally for thousands of years before around campfires, because for some reason these stories stood the test of time. There's an importance mm. to them, something in them that told us how to live or what it means to be human. Or, yeah, we're we're um, we're part of the experience uh, or imparted knowledge that was needed long before mm. we 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 wrote chiseled them in, on clay tablets or wrote them on papyrus. So yeah, there's something that there's something that lasts, um, and and we know that things get modified to fit a narrative. Unfortunately, that's a very common thing, and I think the month of June, the month of June is a particularly difficult one for those uh, who are in America, who um, are uh, for anyone who's black and in America. Particularly, the month of June has a lot of historical ramifications where you can see evidence of even most recent history 
where the way that things were published and framed at the time of events, such as the Tulsa massacre and and other events uh, with Black Wall Street, like it just all these different things that happened, the way that it was phrased or framed at the time are the biggest evidence of what is the dominant narrative, what is the the current framing and how what serves to reinforce the current narrative and current framing and, and this is not even like you you can see it straight up in in the way if you look at these historical documents and so even going back to the biblical uh, references or pre-biblical technical pre pre pre-new testament uh period those stories the way that they are now presented to us like what we hear and what we are shared what we are exposed to would have gone through various filters and yes because and priority yeah what the priorities were like if the priorities were to ensure that uh, material possessions were predominantly in the uh, kept by the church and uh, other things so it, it, there's all these different agendas that come into foot um well, but the key the key point of the story in terms of for me the story of Samson and Delilah was all about uh, part of it was vanity like I'm, I'm like there's going to be a million ways to interpret it, but one of the big things for me was vanity and this this the ease of manipulation when you uh, like manipulation, lack of loyalty, selfishness, all these different features what? that that are harmful. As to whether it, I mean, there's a true important lesson there. Yeah, don't let things distract you to the point that you allow them to manipulate you out of your your strength. Sure, but the way that it was, it gets I guess. The way it gets used and interpreted is the whole women are evil and manipulative and nasty. Yes, Particularly yes, if that fits the modern, if it well, fits a, a, a agenda. What, what you were talking earlier about agenda, um, mm. I thought of the line, history is written by the winners. But I think stories also play a role in that because mm. if the story features something that or reflects positively in the status quo that is going to be spread and move forward. Yeah, I think it's it's if a story is helpful, yes, but how the story is used to reinforce social norms or uh, you know existing prejudices or existing manipulations of population, that's a whole big topic. But yeah, the status quo kind of situation, which stories help us maintain or, or change or bring out the best in people or maintain people to a state of, of stagnancy, it will, the popularity of a story will stay there. I mean, and we've discussed this before, there are always these universal themes as well. And eh. But I mean, this book is not following that. This is not a book that follows... Uh, norms <laughs> no it's not about the universal themes like it literally we've said this before I, my sentence of choice it feels like a, it's a recollection mixed framed in narrative kind of fashion in a kind of clump like a cluster of recollections but written in a way that makes you experience the frustration and the the absolute chaos and the manipulation. So it's, it's all about, I mean, if you wanted to go with a theme that is staying there is those who seek power and influence and are, are willing to do anything to get there will harm pe others. Well, I, I also see the war is hell and makes people mad. It, it, it harms people, but and then that war is caused due to or war is where the, the is the playground of those who wish to like who wish to advance their own themselves where without concern i mean we had this last last chapter last chapter literally we don't actually care about the fact that someone's died we don't care about the people who've died it's that it makes us look bad it's in the report yeah it's it, it and it makes us look bad not that because they died but because you had to go back a second time that's the part that makes us look bad and yeah, we discussed how it kind of went very dark, very suddenly, very dark. Uh, part of it is also, um, I don't know, it's, uh, there's this, this complete lack of 
like the reason Yasserian would be hurting so much also is I think knowing that those actions they made sense like they it was logical to return to go yeah. back a second time because otherwise they'd be having to all go back again yet another time and then but he's the getting guilt. he's getting reprimanded for actually completing the mission yes but they would have been reprimanded for not completing the mission mm -hmm. as well so it's damned if you do damned if you don't they catch the meantime, 22 yeah and then you and the fact that yeah they died because they got caught in the the um anti-aircraft fire but really they would have potentially been caught in the anti-aircraft fire if they had to repeat the mission so there was no guarantee that they would have survived the next mission either yeah so, uh, there was that back and forth where um colonel cathcart was uh yeah it was basically well you could have done it on next mission then yasarian shoots right back of him and what if more people had died on that mission yeah it makes, or it wouldn't have worked, or if we missed again, like there's, yeah. The what ifs. Yeah, it's, it's the, the I mean, the expression is what aboutism? What about mm. this? What about that? It's like, mm. no, we're discussing this right here. What happened? Yeah, but that doesn't happen that way. It's, uh, oh, um, it's, yeah. Uh, you did want to uh, make a quick PSA, I think. Yeah, it's P more P a PSA is slash call for feedback dear listeners like so one of the things that uh, you would have realized that we now have been trying to do is to add the content warning for example at the head of the podcast we're assuming that those listeners who are not huge fans of content warnings or see them as some sort of political notion or whatever have probably uh maybe either are accepting of the fact that we'd like to do them or have left us as a podcast and that's fine that's not something we can control we understand but the one thing that the reason that we do it i hope everyone who is listening or future listeners um, will will understand that we do it because we're trying to do what we can as you know we're just people running a podcast and that's fine and who ha whether it's five listeners or five million it shouldn't matter that because we've like this, uh, Dave and I share this as a feeling that there's this sense of a duty of care that can exist, like whether it's that any individual out there can try their best to not have harm others or at least aggravate the harm that someone else is going through or contribute towards someone else's suffering, like to do your best. And that in that sense, out of a sense of a duty of care for listeners that we've added um, the warnings However, we also welcome your feedback if there are other ways that we can ensure that we're considerate towards our listeners, that we accommodate needs. If someone has particular feedback, uh, be it the length of a podcast, be it the uh, way we break up chapters, be it the way that we uh, reflect on various topics ahead of the chapters, whatever it is. I will um, just say that... Um... If you think we take too long to get the reading and sometimes we discuss things for too long at the start of the podcast, we are aware of that. And it's something we are mindful of as we are in the middle of the discussion, but it's how it plays out. It's who we are. And, you and can that's, always that's fast not, forward. Yeah, that's not the issue. Like, that's not an issue. I'm just saying, as I was saying, like, if you have feedback on any of these things, we will try our best to reflect on them and, and to, to see what we can take on board. Maybe some of the things we can... Uh, take on and actually apply some of the things we might just have to be a little bit more conscious of but this is like our inbox is open to your feedback be it even for in terms of matters of accommodation or needs or if you're happy with the fact that we have content warnings or if you have suggestions for some topics that might not we might not be aware of that could be potentially something to consider that's fine like we're and i think the reason this is partially set off because of a recent thing that's happened with a podcast, not ours, and someone who was interviewed and just chaos and realizing that it's important to make sure that our listeners know they can reach out to us and they can, they can even if it's these kind of topics of, hey, could you please, when, whenever you encounter these kind of topics, just be aware that that can be a really difficult topic for many because there's only so much that we can, that dave and i can think of as oh that could be yeah that could be that could be you know difficult to navigate I'll, I'll, for some. I'll be honest 
one one like especially when we started i found the ideas of content warning silly especially because well this is the book if people know anything about the book they should know that there's going to be difficult subject matter and as we've gone along um you know i've i've warmed to the idea because yeah what does it hurt to let people know that there yeah. might be damaging topics within what we're discussing. I mean, I mean, we've talked a lot about before how some of these books are really of their time and we do as much as we can to uh, adjust, I guess. Adjust is a good word, especially to the worst of it. Yeah. But but other things, you know, it's like, I mean, the half the reason I chose the books I've chosen so far is because they are difficult and I think they're worth mm. discussing. Mm. And, but yeah, it's, I, I definitely understand, especially considering the, the state of our world over the last few years, um, how some folks would be just like, no, nope, can't handle it. Maybe I'll come back in the future, but no. Nope. Yeah, and, and, and if we and can let, yeah. let people know about that before they dive in and are blindsided by something. Um, yeah, it's, and, that, and I think it's, it's only fair. Like being transparent is important, I think. Transparency and accountability. I'm a big fan. That's why I like Windows. Yeah, we're, um, we're we're not we're not, not a Colonel Cathcart here. Yes, not the software, just just the the thing that is in walls. Uh, anyway, never mind. Um, <laughs> I digress. But yeah, so we're gonna find out a bit more. Apparently, apparently, I mean, we got little bits about. It was a little back and forth, but we gathered that Yusarian and um, at least Hungry Joe and Yusarian survived Bologna. I'm, Let's I'm, find out <laughs> how. And it was only because we knew that they went to the apartment in Rome afterwards, and then it just jumped all over the place, as you yeah. do with this. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure Clevenger died on that Bologna run. Yes, I think from from what we're no 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 no, no. didn't he die before? I don't know. The see this the order is you, just. You asked a question about time in relation to this book. I, I this cannot book is... answer you. <laughs> I don't know. I'm looking forward to sitting down with the actual list of locations and missions and the characters living and dying. That mm. will make sense to me. Yeah. Oh. But, yes. but uh, let, let us uh, get to the next chapter, Kid Samson. <laughs> By the time of the mission to Bologna, Yasarian was brave enough not to go around over the target even <laughs> once. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> And when he found himself aloft, finally in the nose of Kid Samson's plane, he pressed in the button of his throat mic and asked, Well, what's wrong with the plane? Kid Samson let out a shriek. Is something wrong with the plane? What's the matter? Kid Samson's cry turned Yasseri into ice. Is something the matter? He yelled in horror. Are we bailing out? I don't know, Kid Samson shot back in anguish, wailing excitedly. Someone said we're bailing out. Who is this anyway? Who is this? This is Yesarian in the nose. Yesarian in the nose. I heard you say there was something the matter. Didn't you say there was something the matter? I thought you said there was something wrong. Everything seems okay. Everything is all right. Yesarian's heart sank. Something was terribly wrong if everything was all right, and they had no excuse for turning back. He hesitated gravely. I can't hear you, he said. I said everything is all right. The sun was blinding white on the porcelain blue water below and on the flashing edges of the other airplanes. Yesarian took hold of the colored wires leading into the jackbox of the intercom system and tore them loose. I still can't hear you, he said. He heard nothing. Slowly, he collected his map case and his three flak suits and crawled back to the main compartment. Nately, sitting stiffly in the co-pilot's seat, spied him through the corner of his eye as he stepped up on the flight deck behind Kid Samson. He smiled at Yesarian wanly, looking frail and exceptionally young and bashful in the bulky dungeon of his earphones, hat, throat mic, flak suit, and parachute. Yesarian bent close to Kid Samson's ear. I still can't hear you, he shouted above the even drone of the engines. Kid Samson glanced back at him with surprise. Kid Samson had an angular, comical face with arched eyebrows and a scrawny blonde mustache. What? he cried out over his shoulder. I still can't hear you, Yesarian repeated. You'll have to talk louder, Kid Samson said. I still can't hear you. 
I said, I still can't hear you, Yisarian yelled. I can't help it, Kit Samson yelled back at him. I'm shouting as loud as I can. I couldn't hear you over my intercom, Yisarian bellowed in mounting helplessness. You'll have to turn back. For an intercom, asked Kid Samson incredulously. Turn back, said Yisarian, before I break your head. Kid Samson looked for moral support toward Nately, who stared away from him pointedly. Yisarian outranked them both. Kid Samson resisted doubtfully for another moment, and then capitulated eagerly with a triumphant whoop. That's just fine with me, he announced gladly, and blew out a shrill series of whistles up into his mustache. Yes, sirree, that's just fine with old Kid Samson. He whistled again and shouted over the intercom. Now hear this, my little chickadees. This is Admiral Kid Samson talking. This Admiral Kid Samson squawking. The pride of the Queen's Marines. Yes, sirree. We're turning back, boys. By cracky, we're turning back. Okay, so... So, Isarian's gone, My the, the intercom's not working, so we need to return. And okay. Kid Samson doesn't really want to go on the mission, but he, he still... He needs a valid reason not to. And since yeah. Isarian outranks him, well, if there's a problem, he's going to take the flak for it anyway, so... Yeah. Nate Lee ripped off his hat and earphones in one jubilant sweep and began rocking back and forth happily like a handsome child in a high chair. Sergeant Knight came plummeting down from the top gun turret and began pounding them all on the back with delirious enthusiasm. Kid Samson turned the plane away from the formation in a wide, graceful arc and headed toward the airfield. When Yasarian plugged his headset into one of the auxiliary jackboxes, the two gunners in the rear section of the plane were both singing La Cucaracha. Back of the field, the party fizzled out abruptly. An uneasy silence replaced it, and the Assyrian was sober and self-conscious as he climbed down from the plane and took his place in the jeep that was already waiting for them. None of the men spoke at all on the drive back through the heavy, mesmerizing, quiet, blanketing mountains, sea, and forests. The feeling of desolation persisted when they turned off the road at the squadron. The Assyrian got out of the car last. After a minute, Yasarian and a gentle warm wind were the only things stirring in the haunting tranquility that hung like a drug over the vacated tents. The squadron stood insensate, bereft of everything human but Doc Danica, who roosted deloriously like a shivering turkey buzzard beside the closed door of the medical tent, his stuffed nose jabbing away in thirsting futility at the hazy sunlight streaming down around him. Yasarian knew Doc Danica would not go swimming with him, Dr. Nika would never go swimming again. A person could swoon or suffer a mild coronary occlusion in an inch or two of water and drown to death, be carried out to sea by an undertow, or made vulnerable to poliomyelitis or meningococcus infection through chilling or overexertion. The threat of Bologna to others had instilled in Dr. Nika an even more poignant solicitude for his own safety. At night now, he heard burglars. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, he was already a bit of a hypochondriac back when we first met him, and now him. he's he's gone into full paranoia. Mm, mm. Yeah. Through the lavender gloom clouding the entrance of the operations tent, Yasarian glimpsed Chief White Halfoat, diligently embezzling whiskey rations, forging the signatures of non-drinkers and pouring off the alcohol with which he was poisoning himself into separate bottles rapidly in order to steal as much as he could before Captain Black roused himself with recollection and came hurrying over indolently to steal the rest himself. The jeep started up again softly. Kid Sampson, Nately, and the others wandered apart in noiseless eddy of motion and were sucked away into the cloying yellow stillness. The jeep vanished with a cough. Yasarian was alone in a ponderous primeval lull in which everything green looked black and everything else was imbued with the color of pus. The breeze rustled leaves in a dry, undiaphanous distance. He was restless, scared, and sleepy. The sockets of his eyes felt grimy with exhaustion. Warily, he moved inside the parachute tent with its long table of smoothed wood, a nagging bitch of a doubt bearing painlessly inside a conscience that felt perfectly clear. He left his flak suit and parachute there and crossed back past the water wagon to the intelligence tent to return his map case to Captain Black, who sat drowsing in his chair with his skinny long legs up on his desk and inquired with indifferent curiosity why Yasarian's plane had turned back. 
Ysterine ignored him. He set the map down on the counter and walked out. Back in his own tent, he squirmed out of his parachute harness and then out of his clothes. Or was in Rome, due back that same afternoon from the rest leave he had won by ditching his plane in the waters off Genoa. Nately would already be packing to replace him. Entranced to find himself still alive, and undoubtedly impatient to resume his wasted and heartbreaking courtship of his prostitute in Rome. When Yasserine was undressed, he sat down on his cot to rest. He felt much better as soon as he was naked. He never felt comfortable in clothes. In a little while, he put fresh undershorts back on and set out for the beach in his moccasins, a cocky colored bath towel draped over his shoulders. The path from the squadron led him around a mysterious gun emplacement in the woods. Two of the three enlisted men stationed there lay sleeping on the circle of sandbags, and the third sat eating a purple pomegranate, biting off large mouthfuls between his churning jaws and spewing the ground roughage out away from him into the bushes. Ooh, when... <laughs> how you eat a pomegranate? Yeah, I... I, I, uh, I, I never would attempt to eat a pomegranate like that. <laughs> so wrong anyway. rue yeah. seems really offended by your I facial am. expression i'm sorry i'm persian background i'm very offended <laughs> that is not proper pomegranate etiquette no okay pomegranate etiquette something no, anyway ter- no bad terrible no <laughs> when he bit reddit juice ran out of his mouth Yasserian padded ahead into the forest again, caressing his bare, tingling belly adoringly from time to time as though to reassure himself it was all still there. He rolled a piece of lint out of his navel. Along the, gr- <laughs> Along the ground suddenly, on both sides of the path, he saw dozens of new mushrooms the rain had spawned, poking their nodular fingers up through the clammy earth like lifeless stalks of flesh. Sprouting in such necrotic profusion everywhere he looked that they seemed to be proliferating right before his eyes. I there think were... there's a very heavy sense of death. And almost like every detail is being taken in. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, kind, kind of like um, they're all dead man walking, so they're appreciating everything around them. That or they're or conscious of the fact that the people that have been sent out there, the chances are that we're all going to be dead. And and maybe there's also a little guilt that he, he manufactured an excuse to save him and well, his crew. Well, whether he manufactured it or whether his, his mind just couldn't process anymore. Mm. And yeah. Actually, let's just take this opportunity to talk because this is a good example. Um, last chapter as well, there's, you know, I've, I've talked about how funny I find the book. And, and a mm. lot of it is very funny, but there there is often a tonal whiplash where it will it will often dance back. And I, I think it's the nature of how the book deals with time, just uh, mm. flippantly as well, where you can be in the middle of a, a humorous conversation and then whap, you're right the in darkness. the middle of something yeah. more intense and dramatic. And um, I think that's heavy. where the, the 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 fact that humor is used to cope and to diffuse the pain. Mm. That's the thing, and you can, and the absurdity, like the, mm. just not being able to reconcile the absurdity with the actual harm. Yeah. Is... Well, because, well, like, from a, a rational standpoint, so much of everything we've read about in this book makes little to no sense. It, no, it makes no sense to do it the way that, yeah, it's painful. There were thousands of them swarming as far back into the underbrush as he could see and they appeared to swell in size and multiply in number as he spied them. He hurried away from them with a shiver of eerie alarm. It did not slacken his pace until the soil crumbled to dry sand beneath his feet, and they had been left behind. He glanced back apprehensively, half expecting to find the limp white things crawling after him in sightless pursuit, or snaking up through the treetops in a writhing and ungovernable mutative mass. Mm. The mushrooms are following him. No, he because he described them as what was it like nodular fingers necrotic like it looks like lifeless fresh flesh like and, and the fact and, that he's feeling it's it's the guilt it's just the mm-hmm. knowing that there's so much death and 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 that, that and it's mushroom, affecting him mushrooms often you know they they, they sprout from refuse and uh, decay 
Well, yeah. The beach was deserted. The only sounds were hushed ones, bloated gurgle of the stream, the respirating hum of the tall grass and shrubs behind him, the apathetic moaning of the dumb, translucent waves. The surf was always small, the water clear and cool. Yossaria left his things on the sand and moved through the knee-high waves until he was completely immersed. On the other side of the sea, a bumpy sliver of dark land lay wrapped in mist, almost invisible. He swam languorously out to the raft, held on a moment, and swam languorously back to where he could stand on the sandbar. He submerged himself headfirst into the green water several times until he felt clean and wide awake and then stretched himself out face down in the sand and slept until the planes returning from Bologna were almost overhead and the great cumulative rumble of their many engines came crashing in through his slumber in an earth-shattering roar. Holy! He turned the plane back on the Bologna run. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's this mission. Oh, wow. So... So his state of mind, yeah, I can understand it even more. He he used any excuse he could to get out of that, but he's like, the rest of them, mm, damn. Yeah. He woke up blinking with a slight pain in his head and opened his eyes upon a world boiling in chaos in which everything was in proper order. He gasped in utter amazement at the fantastic sight of the 12 flights of planes organized calmly into exact formation. The scene was too unexpected to be true. There were no planes spurting ahead with wounded, none lagging behind with damage. No distress flares smoked in the sky. No ship was missing but his own. For an instant, he was paralyzed with a sensation of madness. Then he understood and almost wept at the irony. The explanation was simple. Clouds had covered the target before the planes could bomb it, and the mission to Bologna was still to be flown. He was wrong. There had been no clouds. Bologna had been bombed. Bologna was a milk run. There had been no flak there at all. Wow. Woof. Whoa. <laughs> that 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 was heavier than most. Hmm. So we're having a moment where we're realizing that uh, he was wrong, and his in terms of what would it, what would happen, but the fact that Bologna was showing such a high sign of being de- like deadly yeah well remember captain black's um response to it he took glee and uh insulting all the men that they'd have to fly on what everyone thought was a suicide run Mm -hmm. uh it's just nuts i think the the uh now now i understand what they mean when they say milk run so that's making more sense now Mm. so when things are easy it's called a milk run okay that makes more sense. But in the meantime, doesn't that mean that, that what's his name, Clevenger died during a milk run? Yeah. Although, now or I wonder if... his plane if, disappeared. Uh, now I wonder if he did die in Bologna, because the scene Bologna was simple. No, he didn't. So uh, that hmm. it's, it must have been before. So I'm wondering if it's Bologna that th- this is one of the reasons why what has accumulated, like, cumulatively caused Yossarian to avoid... Bologna to begin with was because th- people like Clevenger's dead and like, yeah. everyone, like that that would have added up and so it's 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 it was just too much yeah because um at, at this point like Yossarian seems broken yeah and and I have to wonder um like okay the, the the um the last time we saw him in relation to Bologna was when he got drunk and Chief White Halfout was driving him and the boys around and they ended up in the ditch. And maybe mm. it's because Yossarian... Well, Yossarian had mouthed off to Colonel Korn about the, the glue gun. He was talking crap again. Mm. Um, but he maybe it was because of him being inebriated, but he felt rather jovial. He felt like the Yossarian we've known so far throughout the book. But yeah. here, he seems different. So between then... Between then and and Bologna did is a question is if Clevenger um, died, mm. or or what else might have happened. And here's the thing, yeah, like like in terms of where things are placed on the timeline, we also don't know how long has been between each like plot point. Mm. Like is is this is this 
like when Yasarian was drunk in the ditch. Was that like a week ago? Was that a month ago? Mm. Was it just like a day or two? Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's just like, it's very confusing. So, so now, because also like, you know, he's our main character and a novel usually has character arcs in it. So we have to jump around and hold in our minds like where characters are mentally <laughs> when we read about them. It's very confusing, yeah. Because like, he's I at a low to... point here, a very low point. Yeah, this is his his is um completely wrecked. He's completely wrecked now. That's where where is that? Oh man, that's sad. So yeah, I, I think with how short Kid Samson was, uh, let's go into the next chapter. Yes, we'll do a two for this week. Yes. Okay. Chapter 15. Pilchard and Wren. Captain Pilchard and Captain Wren, the inoffensive Joint Squadron Operations Officers, were both mild, soft-spoken men of less than middle height who enjoyed flying combat missions and begged nothing more of life and Colonel Cathcart than the opportunity to continue flying them. They had flown hundreds of combat missions and wanted to fly hundreds more. They assigned themselves to every one. Nothing so wonderful as war had ever happened to them before. They were afraid it might never happen to them again. They conducted their duties humbly and reticently, with a minimum of fuss, and went to great lengths not to antagonize anyone. They smiled quickly at everyone they passed. When they spoke, they mumbled. They were shifty, cheerful, subservient men who were comfortable only with each other and never met anyone else's eye, not even Yasarian's eye at the open-air meeting they called to reprimand him publicly for making Kid Samson turn back from the mission to Bologna. Fellas, said Captain Pilchard, who had thinning dark hair and smiled awkwardly, when you turn back from a mission, try to make sure it's for something important, will you? Not for something unimportant like a defective intercom or something like that, okay? Captain Wren has more he wants to say to you on that subject. Captain Pilcher's right, fellas, said Captain Wren, and that's all I'm going to say to you on that subject. Well, we finally got to Bologna today, and we found out it's a milk run. We were all a little nervous, I guess, and didn't do too much damage. Well, listen to this. Colonel Cathcart got permission for us to go back, and tomorrow we're really going to paste those ammunition dumps. Now, what do you think about that? And to prove to Yasarian that they bore him no animosity, they even assigned him to fly lead bombardier with McWatt in the first formation when they went back to Bologna the next day. He came in on the target like a Havermeyer, covenantly taking no evasive action at all, and suddenly they were shooting the living shit out of him. Heavy flak was everywhere. He had been lulled, lured, and trapped, there was nothing he could do but sit there like an idiot and watch the ugly black puffs smashing up to kill him. There was nothing he could do until his bombs dropped but look back into the bomb site where the fine crosshairs in the lens were glued magnetically over the target exactly where he had placed them, intersecting mm. perfectly deep inside the yard of his block of camouflaged warehouses before the base of the first building. Okay, so they, they, they went. They obviously missed the target. Oh, no, they, they got it. No, no. Well, they said the mission was a success. It was a milk run, but yet they're going back to do more damage, it seems. So maybe they That's hit... That's not... But they were meant to smash the ammunition dumps, but they didn't. Or maybe So they, they missed are... the target. So they flew in, didn't get any didn't get any resistance, but hit the, they didn't hit the target. So you know how Yusarian had to fly over the same, previously over that yeah. bridge twice to get it? So they've got a really bad hitting um, rate. And, and, you know, now that I think of it, the word success has not been mentioned yet in terms no. of that first Bologna run. But the way they've been talking about it, it feels like the mission was a success. There and it is. No, 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 here it is. We were all a little nervous, I guess, and didn't do too much damage. Ah, yeah, okay. Yep, yep. So they so, all So maybe they hit something, but like if there were nine ammunition dumps, maybe they hit one or two, but now they yeah. need to go back and finish them off. Yeah. Okay. Which... Which, you know, just I'm thinking tactically is stupid because then the enemy is prepared. going to make sure that they defend that. <laughs> yeah, it's really poor design. Uh, and it, it looks like Yasarian's uh, bearing the brunt of it at the moment. Yeah. He was trembling steadily as the plane crept ahead. 
He could hear the hollow boom, 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 boom of the flak pounding all around him in overlapping measures of four, the sharp, piercing crack of a single shell exploding suddenly very close by. His head was bursting with a thousand dissonant impulses as he prayed for the bombs to drop. He wanted to sob. The engines droned on monotonously like a fat, lazy fly. At last, the indices on the bombsite crossed, tripping away the eight 500-pounders one after the other. The plane lurched upward buoyantly with the light and load. Yasarian bent away from the bombsite crookedly to watch the indicator on his left. When the pointer touched zero, he closed the bomb bay doors and over the intercom at the very top of his voice shrieked, Turn right hard! McWatt responded instantly. With a grinding howl of engines, he flipped the plane over on one wing and run it around remorselessly in a screaming turn away from the twin spires of flak Ysarian had spied stabbing toward them. Then Ysarian had McWatt climb and keep climbing higher and higher until they tore free finally into a calm diamond blue sky that was sunny and pure everywhere and laced in the distance with long white veils of tenuous fluff. The wind strummed soothingly against the cylindrical panes of his windows, and he relaxed exultantly only until they picked up speed again, and then turned McWatt left and plunged him right back down, noticing, with a transitory spasm of elation, the mushrooming clusters of flak leaping open high above him and back over his shoulder to the right, exactly where he could have been if he had not turned left and dived. He leveled McWatt out with another harsh cry, and whipped him upward and around again into a ragged blue patch of unpolluted air just as the bombs he had dropped began to strike. The first one fell in the yard, exactly where he had aimed, and then the rest of the bombs from his own plane and from the other planes in his flight burst open on the ground in a charge of rapid orange flashes across the tops of the buildings, which collapsed instantly in a vast churning wave of pink and gray and coal-black smoke that went rolling out turbulently in all directions and quaked convulsively in its bowels as though from great blasts of red and white and golden sheet lightning. Well, will you look at that, Arvi marveled sonorously right beside Ysarian, his plump, orbicular face sparkling with a look of bright enchantment. There must have been an ammunition dump down there. Arvi's such a dessert. <laughs> Rue could not contain her contempt. <laughs> It's just like there, there's literally <laughs> like the whole passage Ysarian was like right where I was if I hadn't turned, told McWatt to change we'd be dead and that yeah. happened multiple times and, and they're still they're still not out of danger and Arfie's so. like whoa will you look at that <laughs> Dude, and remember he blocks the way so if they need to get out of there which they do Ysarian had forgotten about Arfi. Get out, he shouted at him. Get out of the nose. Arfi smiled politely and pointed down toward the target in a generous invitation for Ysarian to look. Ysarian began slapping at him insistently and signaled wildly toward the entrance of the crawlway. Get back in the ship, he cried frantically. Get back in the ship. Arfi shrugged amiably. I can't hear you, he explained. Ysarian seized him by the straps of his parachute harness and pushed him backward toward the crawlway, just as the plane was hit with a jarring concussion that rattled his bones and made his heart stop. He knew at once they were all dead. Climb, he screamed into the intercom at McWatt when he saw he was still alive. Climb, you bastard! Climb, 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 climb! The plane zoomed upward again in a climb that was swift and straining, until he leveled it out with another harsh shout at McWatt and wrenched it around once more in a roaring, merciless, 45-degree turn that sucked his insides out in one enervating sniff and left him floating fleshless in midair until he leveled McWatt out again just long enough to hurl him back around toward the right and then down into a screeching dive. Through endless blobs of ghostly black smoke he sped, the hanging smut wafting against the smooth plexiglass nose of the ship like an evil, damp, sooty vapor against his cheeks. His heart was hammering again in aching terror as he hurtled upward and downward through the blind gangs of flak, charging murderously into the sky at him, then sagging inertly. Sweat gushed from his neck in torrents and poured down over his chest and waist with the feeling of warm slime. He was vaguely aware for an instant that the planes in his formation were no longer there, and then he was aware of only himself. 
His throat hurt like a raw slash from the strangling intensity with which he shrieked each command to McWatt. The engines rose to a deafening, agonized, ululating bellow each time McWatt changed direction. And far out in front, the bursts of flak were still swarming into the sky from new batteries of guns poking around for accurate altitude as they waited sadistically for him to fly into range. The plane was slammed again suddenly with another loud, jarring explosion that almost rocked it over on its back, and the nose filled immediately with sweet clouds of blue smoke. Something was on fire. Yasarian whirled to escape and smacked into Arfi, who had struck a match and was placidly lighting his pipe. Yasarian gaped at his grinning, moon-faced navigator in utter shock and confusion. It occurred to him that one of them was mad. <laughs> Rue actually facepalmed there. Oh, God. Arfi needs to... Yeah, so the problem is that Yasarian is trying to guide them away from the flak, right? Because Arfi is useless. Mm-hmm. Absolutely useless. But for Yusarian to get out of the nose in time, should anything happen so that he can jump out of the plane, if should it be needed, would require him getting past Arfi. Yeah. And yeah. Arfi's blocking the way. In the meantime, McWatt is asking for help. Especially because, remember, before um, it was remarked how Yusarian was the best at evasive maneuvers because he had that... Um, Instinct that he didn't instinct, want to yeah. die. So everything he's yelled to McWatt so far has saved them. Yes. So the, the, the problem is that Arfi is actually being a major problem here. Yes. And he's Jesus like, I can't hear you. It's like, get out. Mm. Jesus Christ, he screamed at Arfi in tortured amazement. Get the hell out of the nose. Are you crazy? Get out. What? Said Arfi. Get out, Yasarian yelled hysterically and began clubbing Arfi backhanded with both fists to drive him away. Get out. I still can't hear you, Arfi called back innocently with an expression of mild and reproving perplexity. You'll have to talk a little louder. Get out of the nose, Yasarian shrieked in frustration. They're trying to kill us. Don't you understand? They're trying to kill us. Which way should I go, goddammit? McWatt shouted furiously over the intercom in a suffering high-pitched voice. Which way should I go? Turn left, left, you goddamn dirty son of a bitch. Turn left, hard. Arfi crept up close behind Yasarian and jabbed him sharply in the ribs with the stem of his pipe. Yasarian flew up toward the ceiling with a whinnying cry, then jumped completely around on his knees, white as a sheet and quivering with rage. Arfi winked encouragingly and jerked his thumb back toward McWatt with a humorous move. What's eating him? he asked with a laugh. Yasarian was struck with a weird sense of distortion. Will you get out of here? He yelped beseechingly and shoved Arfi over with all his strength. Are you deaf or something? Get back in the plane. And to McWatt, he screamed, dive, dive. Down they sank once more into the crunching, thudding, voluminous barrage of bursting anti-aircraft shells as Arfi came creeping back behind Yasarian and jabbed him sharply in the ribs again. Yasarian shied upward with another whinnying gasp. I still couldn't hear you, Arfi said. I said, get out of here, Yasarian shouted and broke into tears. He began punching Arfi in the body with both hands as hard as he could. Get away from me. Get away. Punching Arfi was like sinking his fists into a limp sack of inflated rubber. There was no resistance, no response at all from the soft, insensitive mass. And after a while, Yasarian's spirit died and his arms dropped helplessly with exhaustion. He was overcome with a humiliating feeling of impotence and was ready to weep in self-pity. What did you say? Arfi asked. Get away from me, Yasarian answered, pleading with him now. Go back in the plane. I still can't hear you. Never mind, wailed Yasarian. Never mind. Just leave me alone. Never mind what? So he can't hear him. <laughs> Seriously, I, I, in that situation, I don't know what I would do. I would not want to hurt or harm another fellow being, but right now, I just want to literally shoot him. That's all I want. Like, bullet in the head, done. <laughs> you see what you've done, Arfie? You've made Rue violent. I'm like... <laughs> it's, I think it's more, I can. I feel the desperation that Yasarian yeah. is going through, and that's just, it's frustrating and angering. Yasarian yeah. began hitting himself in the forehead. He seized Arfie by the shirt front, and struggling to his feet for traction, dragged him to the rear of the nose compartment and flung him down like a bloated and unwieldy bag in the entrance of the crawlway. 
A shell banged open with a stupendous cloud right beside his ear as he was scrambling back toward the front, and some undestroyed recess of his intelligence wondered that it did not kill them all. They were climbing again. The engines were howling again as though in pain, and the air inside the plane was acrid with the smell of machinery and fetid with the stench of gasoline. The next thing he knew, it was snowing. Thousands of tiny bits of white paper were falling like snowflakes inside the plane, milling around his head so thickly that they clung to his eyelashes when he blinked in astonishment, and fluttered against his nostrils and lips each time he inhaled. When he spun around in his bewilderment, Arfie was grinning proudly from ear to ear like something inhuman as he held up a shattered paper map for Hysteria to see. A large chunk of flak had ripped up from the floor through Arfie's colossal jumble of maps and had ripped out through the ceiling inches away from their heads. Arfie's joy was sublime. Will you look at this, he murmured, waggling two of his stubby fingers playfully into Yasarian's face through the hole in one of the maps. Will you look at this? Yasarian was dumbfounded by his state of rapturous contentment. Arfie was like an eerie ogre in a dream, incapable of being bruised or evaded, and Yasarian dreaded him for a complex of reasons he was too petrified to untangle. Wind whistling up through the jagged gash in the floor kept the myriad bits of paper circulating like alabaster particles in a paperweight and contributed to a sensation of lacquered, waterlogged unreality. Everything seemed strange, so tawdry and grotesque. His head was throbbing from a shrill clamor that drilled relentlessly into both ears. It was McWatt, begging for directions in an incoherent frenzy. Yasarian continued staring in tormented fascination at Arfi's spherical countenance beaming at him so serenely and vacantly through the drifting whirls of white paper bits and concluded that he was a raving lunatic, just as eight bursts of flak broke open successively at eye level off to the right, then eight more, and then eight more. The last group pulled over toward the left so that they were almost directly in front. Turn left hard, he hollered to McWatt, as Arfi kept grinning, and McWatt did turn left hard. But the flak turned left hard with them, catching up fast, and Yasarian hollered, I said, hard, 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 you bastard, hard! And McWatt bent the plane around even harder still, and suddenly, miraculously, they were out of range. The flak ended, the gun stopped booming at them, and they were alive. Behind him, men were dying. Strung out for miles in a stricken, torturous, squirming line, the other flights of planes were making the same hazardous journey over the target, threading their swift way through the swollen masses of new and old bursts of flak like rats racing in a pack through their own droppings. One was on fire, a flap lamely off by itself, billowing gigantically like a monstrous blood-red star. As Yasarian watched, the burning plane floated over on its side and began spiraling down slowly in wide tremulous narrowing circles, its huge flaming burden blazing orange and flaring out and back like a long swirling cape of fire and smoke. There were parachutes, one, two, three, four, and then the plane gyrated into a spin and fell the rest of the way to the ground, fluttering insensibly inside its vivid pyre like a shred of colored tissue paper. One whole flight of planes from another squadron had been blasted apart. Yasarian sighed barrenly, his day's work done. He was listless and sticky. The engines crooned mellifluously as McWatt throttled back to loiter and allowed the rest of the planes in his flight to catch up. The abrupt stillness seemed alien and artificial, a little insidious. Yasarian unsnapped his flak suit and took off his helmet. He sighed again restlessly and closed his eyes and tried to relax. Where's Orr? someone asked suddenly over his intercom. Yasarian bounded up with a one-syllable cry that crackled with anxiety and provided the only rational explanation for the whole mysterious phenomenon of the flak of Bologna. Or he lunged forward over the bombsite to search downward through the plexiglass for some reassuring sign of Orr, who drew flak like a magnet and who had undoubtedly attracted the crack batteries of the whole Hermann Goring division to Bologna overnight from wherever the hell they had been stationed the day before when Orr was still in Rome. Arfie launched himself forward an instant later and cracked Yasarian on the bridge of the nose with the sharp rim of his flak helmet. Yasarian cursed him as his eyes flooded with tears. There he is, Arfie orated funerally, pointing down dramatically at a hay wagon and two horses standing before the barn of a greystone farmhouse. Smashed to bits. I guess their numbers were all up. 
Ugh. The Assyrian swore at Arfi again and continued searching intently, cold with a compassionate kind of fear now for the little bouncing and bizarre buck-toothed tentmate who had smashed Appleby's forehead open with a ping-pong racket and who was scaring the daylights out of the Assyrian once again. At last, the Assyrian spotted the twin-engine, twin-ruddered plane as it flew out of the green background of the forests over a field of yellow farmland. One of the propellers was feathered and perfectly still, but the plane was maintaining altitude and holding the proper course. Usarian muttered an unconscious prayer of thankfulness and then flared up at Orr savagely in a ranting fusion of resentment and relief. That bastard, he began, that goddamn stunted, red-faced, big-cheeked, curly-headed, buck-toothed, rat-bastard son of a bitch. What? said Arfie. That dirty, goddamn, midget-assed, apple-cheeked, goggle-eyed, undersized, buck-toothed, grinning, crazy son of a bitch and bastard, Yasarian sputtered. What? Never mind. I still can't hear you, Arfie answered. Yasarian swung himself around methodically to face Arfie. You prick, he began. Me? You pompous, rotund, neighborly, vacuous, complacent. Arfie was unperturbed. Calmly, he struck a wooden match and sucked noisily at his pipe with an eloquent air of benign and magnanimous forgiveness. He smiled sociably and opened his mouth to speak. Yasarian put his hand over Arfie's mouth and pushed him away warily. He shut his eyes and pretended to sleep all the way back to the field so that he would not have to listen to Arfie or see him. At the briefing room, Yasarian made his intelligence report to Captain Black and then waited in muttering suspense with all the others until Orr chugged into sight overhead, finally with his one good engine still keeping him aloft gamely. Nobody breathed. Orr's landing gear would not come down. Yasarian hung around only until Orr had crash-landed safely and then stole the first jeep he could find with a key in the ignition and raced back to his tent to begin packing feverishly for the emergency rest leave he had decided to take in Rome, where he found Luciana and her invisible scar that same night. Whew! Holy crap, man! <laughs> that was intense. Dang it. Okay. So... Yeah, you hate Arfie even more, huh? Well, it's not. It's just Arfie. His existence is just... Uh, it's like even at the end of all that, he he had no concept of what was going on. No, like and and has like why why is what so in in distress? Like going, dude, we're being shot at. And and the big one when he looked down and like there was all the wreckage and it's like oh I guess their numbers were up. Yeah, but it was, I don't know why he thought or and it was a horse and cart would be how or like it made no sense unless he was thinking. Or is a horse, like? Yeah, maybe he didn't understand who Or was or what uh, Yusarin was looking for. But he's also saying, yeah, no, no. So Yusarin's looking for Or. Yusarin's looking for Or, and he's just like he's like, oh, look at that. There must have been their numbers must have been up. Like, look at that cut that over there. It's like, and it has nothing to do with what Yusarin's trying to do. Mm. He's literally endangering people. Yeah. Not only because he would block the way, but because he is just who smokes a pipe when they've had a just. <laughs> and I don't know. It feels like there's a bit of comeuppance in there because the "I can't hear you" is how Yasserine got out of the first run. The first, I think so, but I don't know if it's because or lit. Uh, sorry, because uh, Arfi can't hear him, or if it's because. Arfie's thinking he's being funny. I, I, and I with Arfie, you can't tell. No. Like, he could have been told by one of the others, just pretend you can't hear him the whole way through. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, to be that oblivious, like, Yasserian was beating on him with all his strength, which may not have been much because he was so stressed out of his mind. Yeah. But still, I mean, how do you not read the room? This is beyond not reading the room. He hears him every time he says, never mind. Yeah. He's hearing him. It's just he's not getting it. Or he's not hearing enough. to. Like, he doesn't care. Maybe he did think it was like all a funny joke that he'd do this time. He just kept it going even though he, that was not the situation for it. Not only was it not the situation, the guy has no sense. Like That's why Yosarian's like, he's crazy. Yeah. And it's because he doesn't care. Like, dude, 
he he literally has had a piece of flak almost kill him, and he's like, "Oh, look how funny! What a yeah, delight!" That was. He's not well. Oh man, <laughs> he shouldn't have been there to begin with, and I think that's the thing that that that's. But of course, you know, it, it doesn't matter how uh, touched in the head any of these folks are. Well, they no, can't what get was worse is the them. previous chapter, it was pointed out that the reason they had to go over twice was because of Arfi. Previous, previous chapter. Because oh, Ar- remember, uh, he said, well, he wasn't sure if the, that was the town that we were at. So we had to go over again kind of thing. It's like, are you going to blame your, your navigator? It's like, well... No, but seriously, that's why. <laughs> no, but I want to. No, well, no, it's like I've given you the information. You're not letting me tell you what's actually happened. As to whether Captain Black will take on board what's happened as well mm. is another question. But the fact that Yossarian has this... Yossarian is blaming Orr for the fact that there was flack there this time because of his superstitious... Um, <laughs> He's like the the whole Herman Goring division came to Bologna because of because of, yeah, but well, it would have been they would have come because they yeah. were being attacked for the first the time. Before, like mm-hmm. I don't know if on the German side you you think they would uh, those idiots well they wouldn't be silly enough to try for a second run would they I mean we've had a day to prepare for them. Well, no, that's the thing as well. Like, had they they used if they had done what Usarian did that first time where he got the medal, which is fly over and return over it to go for the target, mm. that would have been the wise choice. And in fact, I would bet you that if Usarian still had the quote unquote bravery to to fly, yeah, he would have done it. And I think he probably also blames himself or will be blaming himself for the, these losses. Yeah. Because had he done what he did the first time around when he got a, a medal where he would repeat and fly over it, but he got told he shouldn't do that because it makes them look bad. Yeah. Uh. This is, so, so really, this whole thing is, it's not his fault per se, but he, his actions could have changed it because if he, if he still would have flown, if he hadn't been influenced by the fact that those people, like, they got punished basically the first time around. Mm. So it's it's they they are making Usarian into what he is, yeah, which is just foolish. Well, I, I think I said before how as we're getting into know more and more characters, it feels like each one of these characters is responding to the stress of war in very different ways. Yeah, I mean, Arfie is just literally should not be out there, and I think someone needs to deal with it. Yeah, it makes me wonder if someone will... Will deal with it. I would say, yeah. I mean, if he survives, he survives. But at yeah. this rate, I, I think something... Like, whether something happens... Murphy needs to go! Yeah. Uh, it's pretty bad. It, oh, it's bad. That was... um, Yeah, reading it was uh, <laughs> very intense as well. Yeah, it just... It's, there's just so many like Arfi's just a pain, but uh... yeah. But Eusarium uh, Ogwat seemed to have you know good communication. They made it through. I mean, they yeah. were hit a couple times, so they were very lucky to make it out of there. But yeah, it's it's rough. It's mm. rough. Uh, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's almost like I don't know how much I can say after going through that. I need to decompress from all that. Yes, pretty much. Like it's how do you how do you how do you solve a problem like Garfi? No, Garfi just needs to go. Garfi's bad. Garfi's bad. But yeah, it's all it's all intense. Uh, yeah, so I'm like I'm like I want to know how it continues, but at the same time, like need to digest what just happened. Yeah, I I, I need to come down from that. Uh... That anxiety. Yeah. That stress. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty intense. And but... it, it seems like next chapter may be a little uh, calmer. It's about Luciana. So mm. maybe not, actually, considering um, she's a prostitute in Rome. But We'll find out. Yes, I, I think we'll find out next time. Well, uh, I, I hope you enjoyed this week. Uh, we got two chapters done. Um that's the first time in this book so far, I believe. We'll see I'm, if it's not the last one. 
But the uh, music at the top of the podcast was Soap Runs by Rupert Gregson-Williams and Harry Gregson-Williams. It's from the 2019 adaptation of Catch-22. Uh, the music at the end of the podcast is I'm the Slime by Frank Zappa. You can find me over on Twitter at Dave underscore the underscore turnip. You can find me at Rumikmoo, that's R-O-O-M-C-M-O-O on Twitter. And you can find our podcast at S-M-B-S-L-T podcast. That's on Twitter, on Facebook. And if you add an at gmail.com, you get our email address. Mm, we we uh, I mean we kind of went through uh, how we want your feedback earlier in the podcast, but once again, you know, uh, if you got suggestions for book story, do you want to tell us how you think you, uh, we're doing? If you have any response to the book so far, uh, what are your thoughts about certain characters, certain scenarios, what's happened, uh, how we've responded to it? Please let us know. And until next week, uh, enjoy your reading and stay safe. Goodbye, everyone. Bye.